Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. Today, we're reviewing our apricot, peach, and blackberry cobbler from the London newspaper, The Telegraph, and to wind up our month of stone fruits, introducing a sweet cherry hand pie from Taste of Home. Then, I'll share my culinary adventures in Italy during our globetrotting gourmet segment. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, we had so much fun last May during our Royal Treatment Month, and we did a bunch of background on the food history and trivia about the British royal family. Do you remember that? It was in episode 93. No, this is episode 93. I do remember that. It was a lot of fun, and um, I felt like I learned a lot, and I felt like you had access being right on site there in London. I felt like we sort of got some inside track on a few things. Yeah, absolutely. That was back in episode uh, 75 during the Royal Treatment Month of May. And I recently ran across another piece of royal food trivia about Queen Victoria. It pertains to today's episode that we're going to talk about cherries as our stone fruit to round out our stone fruit month. So I thought I, I would probably need to share this. Yes, please. You are familiar with the dessert, Cherry's Jubilee. Yes. And in fact, I've had it recently, a couple of times in the past year. Yeah. Are you making Cherry's Jubilee? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. See, you and Queen Victoria, you know, <laughs> kindred spirits. Well, it's one of those desserts that feels fancy and difficult, but it's actually really easy and, and quick to whip together at the end of a meal. And it's kind of fun for the guests because you light things on fire. And that always is fun. Right. So for those who don't know, it is a, a cherry dessert, which is also used some cherry liqueur, and then you light it on fire. So you're flambéing it, and it's very, very dramatic. And it was really in vogue in the States in like the 50s and the 60s. But I recently ran across a small article, and it said that the technique of flambéing, of, of pouring alcohol on something and then lighting it very dramatically, uh, heated up the kitchens of the late 19th century, and brandy-soaked cherries were first served this way at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee in 1887. And a Golden Jubilee is celebrating 50 Ew. years on the throne. So Queen Victoria's favorite fruit was the cherry, and who knows, maybe she also liked setting things on fire. I can't speak to that, but... <laughs> <laughs> she seems like the kind of gal that would have liked a, you know, a flame at the end of a meal. Some drama. I agree. So today, I think we think of serving that over ice cream or with cream. Do you just, do you have it that way, Andrea, when you serve it? Or do you, do you just have the cherries? Yeah, no, I definitely serve it with ice cream. I feel like it needs that. And it, plus it's so much fun because the cherries are warm and the ice cream's cold. And so then it gets all melty. And yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, excellent. So next time you're you're firing it up in the kitchen, think about Queen Victoria and how much she loved her her cherries jubilee. I love that. Thank you. I never thought about where that name came from. So that I always just thought it was maybe a variant on the word jubilant, like exciting because it's fun to make. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Setting things on fire always fun. 
Right. My update here is a quick report on my cookbook club. We met last month, and our book for this quarter was Diana Henry's book, How to Eat a Peach. Stefan, have you seen that book in the bookstores by any chance? I have. I think I know what you're going to (laughs) say. So it's beautiful. And the thing that I am going to say that you might have figured out is it's textured. So it's fuzzy Mm. like a peach. Yes. And isn't it dark blue? The version here, I think, is dark blue. So you're really not expecting that texture. And then you touch it and it's just this like sensory overload all at once. It's it's this ah feeling comes over you. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the version here is not dark blue. I would say it's more of a light gray, but I still was not expecting the texture. So yeah. when I went and touched it, I did the same thing. I sort of made that little squeal in the bookstore. It was very exciting. Our cookbook club, I've mentioned before, people make various dishes. The host at Browser's Bookstore in Olympia, Washington, try to round out the meal so we don't have too many desserts or too many appetizers, although too many desserts would not Hmm. be a problem as far as I'm concerned. Um, Some of the standout entrees were the burrata salad, the chickpeas and tomatoes with leeks, and then my very favorite was the salad with carrots, beets, and yogurt. It was so incredible. I, I just can't speak highly enough about it. And it was beautiful. You know, the orange carrots and the purple beets and the beautiful white yogurt. And how was that spiced? How was that spiced, Andrea, the carrot salad? What what was it like a Middle Eastern flavors? What was going on there? Yes, it. Um, I think it was intended to be Middle Eastern flavor. I haven't gone back and looked at the recipe, but the lady who made it comes from New Mexico, and I know she mm. had used New Mexican Santa Fe, Santa Fe style chili powder in it. So I just loved the flavor. I, I thought it, it had a real kick to it, which was great. Nice. The desserts, though, are what really stood out to me. So two desserts that were both very unusual and very good. One was a gooseberry cake, and I think that's my first time having gooseberries. Is that something that's more common? It is a popular flavor here, but actually when I was growing up, we knew a family who grew them, so I've been eating them for a very long time. They almost look like a grape, the ones that this family grew, a big green green grape, but they're a gooseberry. Yeah. Okay. Well, I had not had any before, so that was fun and just very different. There was also a pistachio shortbread with wine, cherries, and cardamom cream. Oh. I mean, so you just get to see how she takes something and, you know, can take something very simple and then mm-hmm. elevate it. Mm-hmm. But my absolute favorite was someone who brought an ice cream. She actually brought two of her ice creams. One was a strawberry buttermilk ice cream, which I absolutely loved. It reminded me a lot of the one we've made on the show before, the roasted strawberry buttermilk ice cream. And the other one was a Turkish coffee ice cream. Stefan, it was out of this world. I can't tell you how much I loved it. Turkish coffee is very strong, isn't it? And has almost a bitter flavor. Is that right? And I think that's why she calls it Turkish coffee ice cream. The It's a no-churn ice cream. It's almost exactly like that Nigella recipe mm. you fell in love with yes. over the summer. Oh, yeah. You know, it's got the sweetened condensed milk and the heavy cream and the coffee and cardamom. And with the coffee, it uh, she just specifies to use an... Um, 
instant espresso powder mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, just mix it with a little hot water. So you're basically making just like, yes, a very strong, bitter shot of espresso. The one thing that was different the night of the event and then when I remade it, and so I think I'm going to change things around a little bit. The night of the event, the person who made the ice cream, I tasted it and I thought it was just perfect. It just had this hint of cardamom in it, mm-hmm. which I absolutely loved. And then when I got home and I looked at the recipe, it said 10 cardamom pods, the seeds from 10 cardamom pods. And I I did think to myself, like, wow, that is a lot of cardamom. But, you know, I've had this and I know that it's, you know, mild. So I'm going to follow the recipe. And so I made it and it was overwhelmingly cardamom flavor. Okay. Yeah, so I wrote the person who had brought it to the event, and I said, hey, I, I just made this, and it is so strong. You know, what did you do differently? Mm-hmm. And she said that she had used some cardamom powder yeah. and, you know, just sort of substituted what she thought. I think maybe she had said she used a half teaspoon, maybe even a quarter teaspoon. So I think I'll monkey around with that a little bit more. I do love cardamom. I love that flavor, but I don't want that to be the primary. I want the coffee to be the primary mm-hmm. flavor. I want that cardamom to be like an an undernote. So I'll be messing around a little bit more with that, even though I think most people think of ice cream season being over. I fully intend to plow through the holidays and work on my ice cream. It's never over. (laughs) That sounds great. Well, I'm interested in in trying that. And what a nice segue into this week's Bake Along, which was the apricot, peach, and blackberry cobbler that Diana Henry had excerpted in The Telegraph, which is a newspaper here in London. And Andrea, this was a quintessential English cobbler. We talked last episode in episode 92 about how that was a little bit different from maybe a quintessential American cobbler, especially the topping on this apricots here and I noticed how you said apricot and I'm saying apricot so we're in another semi fredo semi fredo situation I (laughs) (laughs) who knows I've always said apricot but I you know I definitely could be wrong on that apricot 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 sounds a little more genteel I'm gonna go with apricot so apricots are still very much in season here they're coming from Spain you also have peaches and blackberries a fairly standard fruit filling there and then your topping has a regular flour ground almonds or almond flour flaked almonds and uh, you are topping that and and baking it off so Andrea I know there may have been some hurdles right from the get-go tell me what happened My biggest hurdle, which, of course, I texted you about in a bit of a panic, was that I could not find fresh apricots anywhere. So the first sort of round of grocery shopping that I did when I couldn't find them, I didn't really panic at that point because I just thought, oh, I haven't gone to enough stores yet. I've only hit one or two stores, and, you know, they're just out of it. And the people that I asked didn't seem puzzled when I asked them where it was. They sort of, like, looked to this certain section of the shelf, and they're like, oh, I guess we're out, you know, and and didn't really act like it was a big deal. I did pick up a package of dried apricots, but then when I got home and I looked at it, I just thought, no, this is not something I could substitute. Like, it, you know, cooked fruit is a very different texture than dried fruit and fresh fruit yeah. that's been cooked. So I really wasn't comfortable doing that. So I thought, no problem. I will just double down on my efforts to find apricots. So now I went to, you know, a week or two later, a whole nother round of grocery stores and um, <laughs> farm stands, farmer's markets. And this is when I started getting like the people at the farmer's market and the farm stands um, kindly but firmly told me, no, we do not have them and we will not have them. They are a July (laughs) fruit. You know, do not try to find them outside of July. And I just thought it was so fascinating. I finally ended up at kind of my high-end grocery store, a thriftway in town, and I asked to speak to the produce manager. And (laughs) we 
<laughs> Take me to the top. <laughs> exactly. I just said, you know, we had this long conversation and he was equally adamant that it is a July fruit and they will not carry it outside of July. But then when I said, okay, mm. well, I, I get that and I do want to eat in season. And so I, I understand not. But why do we just toe the line on apricots with this? I mean, I can often find, you know, peaches out of season or apples out of season or, you know, all these other things out of season. Yeah, absolutely. Strawberries. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not good, but you can still find them. You know, they're grown in a right, hot house right. or they're grown in a warm climate or something like that. And, you know, he did look kind of puzzled when I asked him that. And he was like, well, yeah, I don't really know. And I said, furthermore, (laughs) uh, I can't find them frozen. (laughs) And it's not just that they're missing. You know, when you go to the frozen fruit section and you look at the tags on the shelves, there are no slots for frozen apricots. Have you ever seen Mm -hmm. a frozen apricot for sale? I have not. The only other way I've seen them is canned. Yes. With syrup, usually. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that is what a little bit of my apricot research turned up. Um, they are a very delicate fruit. They are very difficult to transport. It said, in fact, um, 75% of them are used for processing and mostly for canned. And um, it they okay. also are one of the fruits that do not ripen once you pick them. So you have to pick them at exactly the right time in order for them to be ripe. But at the same time, they're so delicate that you have to be really careful about shipping them. And so I think that explains kind of that short window and that difficulty in finding them. It's just that they're they're temperamental. My grocer did tell me that I could substitute a nectarine and that's what I went ahead and did. Okay. After I had made this dessert, I also had done I had done a little more research on that dessert I used last week in episode 92. Um, I used those flavor grenade plums you might remember. The plums, that's right. Yes. How can I forget the flavor grenade? (laughs) I know. I was doing a little research on that because I wanted to see if I could figure out which farm they came from. And it turns out that the flavor grenade plum is actually a hybrid fruit. It is 70% plum and 30% apricot. So (gasps) it's it's not enough to be a pluot. I I think pluots are more kind of Mm -hmm. 50-50. But I thought, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I could have substituted a plum here. Anyway, I substituted a nectarine. So that was my first challenge. My second challenge with this recipe, back in episode 91, Just Peachy, we reviewed the Smitten Kitchen's classic peach pie. And both of us commented on how she writes her recipes. They're a little long. They're a little rambling. They have a lot of information. We love to read them. But, you know, sometimes it can be hard to get right to the point you need. Boy, Diana Henry's recipe here in this article The complete opposite, like no extra information. So, you know, on the peaches stoned and sliced, I thought, well, that's odd. She doesn't say to peel them. I guess I don't peel them. But to me, I was just kind of like, oh, the peach peel cooked. That's going to be interesting. Um, The butter, she doesn't tell you whether you need it to be softened or not. And since I had um, four tablespoons softened and two unsoftened, I can tell you it's a lot easier if you have it softened a little bit. Okay. The oven-proof dish. She doesn't tell you what size you need. And so it's like, okay, am I making a 9 by 9 Am I making an 11 by 7 Am I making a 9 by 13 Because, of course, the pan size is going to change how thick it is, which in my mind changes the amount of cooking time. It sure does. And there is no salt in this recipe, which was very, very worrisome to me. <laughs> I do not like baking without salt. So... I know the butter, she did not specify salted or unsalted butter. 
I had was using unsalted butter. So I did put a little bit of salt both on my fruit and in my crumble. There you have it. Those are my comments on the recipe. It turned out fabulously. I loved this dish, but I just was really a little bit flummoxed by the recipe. And it's very different from her cookbook. Her cookbook is some of the most beautiful food writing that I've ever read. Mm. And you get this whole sense of place and emotion mm. and exactly where she was and how she felt while she was eating. So I do I do encourage you to pick up her cookbooks. Um, she's just a fabulous, fabulous writer. This particular recipe I thought could have used a little more. Well, I am interested in checking out her book, but for a different reason, because this did not work for me. And oh, no. it's fascinating because, of course, I was able to find the key ingredient with no problem. So... <laughs> Apricots are still very much in season. They are coming here from Spain. They are everywhere. They are in your local grocery store, but they're also at the fruit stand. So I was spoiled for choice, as they say, about where I could pick up my apricots. No problem at all there. I had my peaches and my blackberries. So one thing I am noticing as I'm reading through this recipe, you had mentioned no salt. I also flagged that. There's also no seasoning of any kind. There's no cinnamon. There's no vanilla. And I had to get a little Andrea Ballard on this, if you uh, don't mind. So, what? Well, did we break some rules? Did we bend some guidelines? I said, tell me. I'm so excited. Last episode, when we reviewed our plumberry meringue, I loved the combination of the plum and then the very strong vanilla. That was really the overwhelming flavor in that base, which you use a vanilla bean. It's a very intense vanilla flavor. So I was trying to look toward that. I ended up adding a quarter teaspoon of vanilla bean paste and half a teaspoon of cinnamon to my filling. And you could also use an almond extract here since you're topping that with almonds. And I think that Almond and apricot is a really nice and very mm -hmm. classic combination as well. So I had no problems making this. Uh, I used my 11 by 7 inch dish, had everything ready. It looked beautiful, right? You have those orange peaches and the dark purple blackberries, the mm -hmm. crumble on top. I baked it up. We took some bites. You know, when... When you had done the review of the classic peach pie, you said, there's nothing wrong with this. It just mm -hmm. kind of didn't do anything for me. And that's exactly what I felt like here. I just thought that this is fine, but there's nothing special here. So it's fascinating because one reason I chose this recipe in particular is I've, I've always kind of had this feeling about apricots that they're maybe my least appreciated or the stone fruit that I have the least experience with. And and maybe that goes to what you were saying at the top of the show, that there is just such a small window for them. Yeah. But this July, speaking of apricot season in the Northwest, you posted a recipe for an apricot pie on our Facebook page after I think it was listener Dorothy said, what should I do? My neighbor has this apricot tree. I have all these apricots, you guys. What should I do with them? Oh, that's right. Yes. And you posted a recipe. Well, loyal listener Christy followed your recipe and made the most phenomenal apricot pie I have ever had. I mean, maybe one of the most phenomenal pies I've ever had. So it may come down to the variety, to eating it right in season. I cannot tell you enough how delicious that pie was 
and how much then I was looking forward to using apricots again in this application but interesting didn't work for me again nothing nothing wrong here mm-hmm. uh just just not a great flavor I thought just just kind of kind of boring a little bit oh gosh well you know what's funny is I thought I followed this recipe to the letter and it wasn't until (laughs) you were sharing your story that I remembered (laughs) one tiny little thing that I did. But Stefan, it's such a small thing. I I really didn't even feel I had to report it. What if it's the thing? (laughs) Well, here's here's what it is. I don't know if you remember back um, when I went to Tennessee and I visited my friend Amy who used to own and run the Bluebird Cafe. And she told me that pretty much exclusively when baking instead of using regular sugar she uses vanilla sugar so she pours her sugar into a canister that has two or three vanilla beans in it and as soon as I got home I did that as well so I do have a container of regular sugar but then I have a container of vanilla sugar and that is the sugar that I used so I did cheat and use some vanilla and I did not even think about that you're right I really think that that made the filling more interesting, but it still wasn't enough. So, you know, if you want to take the basics of this recipe and play around with it, it's a good template recipe to do Mm -hmm. that with, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also would have liked a little more crunch in the topping. We talked about that last episode. There's, There's really the almonds, but they're flaked almonds, which are kind of a softer crunch to me, I think. And... I would have liked some maybe bigger chunks of nut or oatmeal, something like that going on. Um, just didn't, yeah, just wasn't wild about this one. Yeah. So it's so funny that I could find the ingredients <laughs> but didn't end up caring for it so much. And you couldn't and ended up having this great experience. We did. I ate it hot out of the stove. I mean, I think it even said leave to cool a little. And this is the part where I appreciated her not being very specific in her instructions. It was sitting there. It was steaming hot. The fruit was bubbling. I I stared at it for about a minute. And I was like, okay, that's cooled a little. And I ate a bowl of it then. It was so good. Just fresh, hot, warm out of the oven. I didn't put any ice cream on it because it was like midday. But if I had, I imagine it would have been incredible. You got to draw the line somewhere. You really do. You have to have standards. So about an hour later, I prepared my second bowl, and it was still good, but it was not as good as the hot out the oven. So I say if you are to make this and serve it, you know, I'd have it be one of those things that I'd pop it in the oven, you know, maybe when everyone's sitting down to dinner so that you can serve it piping hot when it's done. And then the next morning, I served it to my daughter for breakfast, just cold out of the fridge, and she loved it. You know, and I, I justified that by saying, it was mostly fruit. I mean, the, the crumble topping Indeed. wasn't huge yeah. because I, like you, used an 11 by 7 pan. I think yeah. if you'd used, you know, an 8 by 8 or a 9 by 9, the crumble topping would have been a lot thicker. Yeah, I had an interesting thought on the crumble topping. When I reviewed the recipe really quickly and I saw she was using ground almonds, I was like, oh, good, it's going to be gluten-free. But then um, th- she had the flour in it. So I was kind of, uh, I was a little bit baffled by that. It was like, why use the almond flour if you're going to use um, regular flour with it. I mean, of course, you could use gluten-free flour. But anyway, um, good experiment. I plan to try this next July when I can locate the elusive fresh apricot. (laughs) I think that may be the key here, that really you want to take advantage of that small window and maybe we should all be friends with Dorothy and she can send those apricots to us. That's what she can do. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know, what's so exciting about that story you told me is I don't even remember posting a recipe. I mean, I remember saying, try this, but it wasn't really a recipe. It was more like apricots and sugar and a little bit of thickener. And 
It was the filling for it. And then I think Christy used her own mm. pastry. And she's a very, very good pie maker in general. So Christy, you could let us know on Facebook if you followed something else or if you made some modifications of your own because it was dynamite. Uh, yeah, that does sound so great. Here is something coming up next, and let's hope it can be as great as that apricot pie Christy made for you. And that is a cherry hand pie from Taste of Home. Stefan, how did you pick this particular recipe? Mostly from the picture. So (laughs) (laughs) we've done some Taste of Home things before. They are also responsible for lots of our listeners' favorite cookbooks and have just a ton of stuff out there. These are called lots of love cherry pies. So a hand pie is by definition just a little kind of one serving pie you could hold in your hand. These are just in the heart shape. So I thought that was very, very sweet. I also liked this recipe because if you are starting to get into that gray period of the fresh fruit waning and not being able to get the fresh, these you can substitute frozen. It says that right in the the recipe. So nice. no worries there. You've got a basic pie crust. Of course, you could use any pie crust that you like to make. And then your your filling is the pitted dark sweet cherries, uh, cornstarch, water sugar, almond, a little bit like that. And mm. then you're just you're making up the filling, rolling out your dough and, and cutting it into heart shapes. And just thought it was was very cute. And I think we had a listener a few months ago who had made a fresh cherry pie and shame on me I can't remember who that was but it was very inspirational at the time and we thought oh we've got to feature at least one cherry dessert during stone fruit month oh yes absolutely I love cherries and almond I think that flavor combination is incredible I am thinking about using dried sour cherries for this that's something they sell a lot in my area and I've baked with them before and they're really good I, I'm thinking it's not going to matter as I might have to up the um, sugar component a little bit and the other thing I'm tr- thinking about trying with this I love the heart shape don't get me wrong but I do have an experience from um, a pie class that I went to one uh, the person teaching it brought one of those um, hand crimping implements mm. and yes, you I know Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not a a huge fan of the unitaskers. So you can imagine I was kind of like, I don't need that thing. You know, who wants this plastic thing that you only use for crimping pies? But I tell you, what it does for you is it keeps everything uniform so that the amount of filling that you put in is not too little or too much. Because if it's too little, you end up with, you know, too much crust and not enough filling. And if it's too much, the filling just oozes and explodes. And then you have this big mess. And you know, right. it's all running out of the, the hand pie. So I think hers was from Wilton. I think it was, you know, just kind of a cheapy sort of item. I've looked on Amazon. There are all kinds. There are rectangular ones so that you can end up with what you um, make looking like a Pop-Tart. There are ones sold in three packs where it's like one is the size for the calzone, one is the size for the empanada, one is the size for the hand pie. You know, so there's options out there. We'll put some links in the show notes for you guys if you want to get those. And I do think if you do this sort of thing on the regular, it is one of those little tools that's nice to have. And I don't think you need to buy a different sizes. I use the same one for hand pies is the same one that I use for my meat pies and the same one that I use for my empanadas. So, you know, I, oh, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's more than a unitasker. It, it covers multiple dishes. Well, and speaking of a, a very important unitasker with cherries, Andrea, I was blown away by the advances in cherry pitter technology. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Oh, tell my, me more. <laughs> my cherry pitter looks like a little pogo stick for like Stuart Little or something. You know, it's just very basic. And okay. all you do is set the set the cherry there and then push the plunger and the, the pit shoots, you know, who knows where in your kitchen and you're racing after it and you've splattered yourself. And little did I know how very technologically advanced cherry pitters have become but when I was home in the states this summer I was at my mom's and she has this great gadget it has a little it's OXO brand which they make great gadgets and it has a little box to kind of shield the the pit so it doesn't or to contain the pit really okay so I will tell you, it was a pleasure. I was looking for things to pit. I just started pitting <laughs> olives. I was, <laughs> and they're ten bucks. Like, why have I not invested in this? It's it's one of those. It is a unitasker. Although I guess you could make the the case you could do cherries or olives, but it's it's that thing you need when you need it. And yeah. so if I do have a birthday coming up. You know, if anyone's listening, ten bucks on Amazon. <laughs> I hope you're deluged with cherry pitters. <laughs> I've not ever used one. That's a good tip. I, They're fun. And in fact, I think that's maybe – this is the, the cycle that goes through in my brain. Oh, I want to make a cherry pie. Oh, I don't have a cherry pitter, and I don't feel like pitting two pounds of cherries. Oh, I'd have to use cherry pie filling. Ooh, I don't like the way that tastes. And yeah, so yeah, that's, yeah. Where it, that's where it's ended, you know? I'm telling you what. Check it out. Well, remember, we'll have a link to these recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook page. Andrea, it's time to return to one of our most beloved mini-segments, the Globetrotting Gourmet. You recently had a trip to Central Italy and Tuscany this summer, and I know one of your stated resolutions while you were traveling in Italy was to follow a strict two gelato per day minimum. I love you so much. (laughs) Were you successful in reaching this stretch goal? Uh, Yes, it stretched me in more ways than one. We visited Italy during quite a heat wave, and so the temperatures were hovering around 90, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, or on your side, 35 degrees Celsius. The humidity was around 90%, so gelato was truly one of the few things that (sighs) kept us sane. One of our first activities we did was a culinary tour, and our local guide was from southern Italy, where my husband's family originated Mm. from. So we felt a real bond with him right away. And, of course, we quizzed him about gelato, and he gave us some tips. So he said, first of all, avoid those super tall, fluffy mounds that make great photos but not necessarily great gelato. Um, because, you know, to create those mounds, you need a lot of stabilizers and fillers to get the gelato to hold that exaggerated shape. So pretty to look at, but maybe not the best to eat. Second, he told me, avoid the neon colors that Mm. may catch your eye, since those probably contain dyes and additives. And it was really funny. He said to me, what color is a banana? And I said, yellow. And then he asked me again, speaking very slowly, what (laughs) color is a banana? (laughs) And I was like, oh, right, it's white. (laughs) Yeah, not the peel, not the peel, right. No, not the peel. An actual banana is white. Uh So banana gelato should be white, not yellow. And, of course, if you see a banana gelato, a lot of times it's this neon yellow. So he's like, nope, that's not good. And then his third tip was to frequent places called gelaterias that only sold gelato. So not, you know, gelato, pizza, potato chips, lottery ticket. So it's really to look for one that's a, a true specialty store. Oh, interesting. Um, so did you have any banana gelato? 
<laughs> no, but I did have a, a lot of peach and melon, mm. and it's really funny because in my regular life here in the states, I I rarely get fruit desserts or okay. fruit uh, ice creams or fruit gelatos. I tend toward the rich and creamy gelatos, but in this particular heat, those fruit flavors were really calling to me. Oh, me too. Those are my favorite gelatos as well. In fact, I like them more than I would like a chocolate or something that I would normally choose yes. maybe in the states. So yeah, one of my favorite flavors is cherry and I'm not just saying oh. that because it's stone fruit month um <laughs> what um what else did you try uh, well, some of the most interesting that we were able to try was when we were in this tiny village called Chatona, and that is located in the Siena province in Tuscany. The local bar there, bar, coffee shop, um, everything kind of store called Bar Cavour, and it's run by these two brothers. They make 15 to 20 flavors each day, and oh. they almost always sold out. So if you went in there that night and you saw a flavor that you wanted, you needed to get it because yeah. it wouldn't possibly be there the next day. Uh, I tried a biscottini, which tasted like a cream or a vanilla gelato with biscot cookies, so Aww. you can imagine how much I love that. There was a fresh ricotta and fig one day that was just so light and delicious. Uh, but my absolute favorite was the pine nut gelato or a pignoli gelato. And I've been looking into recreating that. So stay tuned. I might have a recipe for you soon. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a very interesting flavor. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Andrea, did your family also follow the two gelato a day guideline? <laughs> well, not surprisingly, my daughter was fully on board with this. And um, in the whole trip, she never once changed her order. Yeah. Every single time, she got a small cone, piccolino cono, with two scoops. And one scoop was the dark, dark chocolate, like so dark it's almost black. Yeah. And the other scoop was mint. And when I tried it, it reminded me exactly of an Andy's dinner mint. <laughs> I love those. <laughs> uh, who knew you needed to travel to Italy just to have an Andy's dinner mint? Love that. <laughs> I know. Um, my husband, as I've mentioned before, he's not a huge dessert fan, so he could really take or leave the gelato. He was so enamored of Italian food that he was just as likely to grab another slice of prosciutto as he was <laughs> a sweet mm -hmm. at the end of the meal. But when we were in Florence, he finally found his flavor. It was peanut. He has always loved peanut butter milkshakes. That's and right. those kind of seem to be falling out of fav favor here in the U.S., I think, due to peanut allergies. And so it was a real pleasure for him to find just a pure peanut gelato. And once he realized they had that, he had that a couple of times, and he loved it. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like one that would also be good with the classic chocolate. And my kids and husband love to mix their scoops also. Mm -hmm. So during your trip, I'm guessing your dessert exploration did not stop at gelato, however. So what else did you find? <laughs> Yes, of course. Well, one of my favorite desserts was a cheesecake topped with blueberries. And um, I was a little hesitant to get it because it was at the end of a two-hour lunch, and I was already pretty full. <laughs> and I asked the server about it, and he said, you absolutely have to get this. We make this in-house, and we make the cheese, and it uses homemade ricotta. Mm. And I, it came out, and it was so fluffy and so light. Um, I think you know, it was not at all like those dense New York cheesecakes. It was, it was one of the lightest and most delicious cheesecakes I've ever had. Yeah, I see that ingredient a lot in English recipes for cheesecakes since, uh, as we know, uh, you all know very well that the cream cheese is very different here than in the U.S. It's not as hard. So maybe that's true in Italy too. 
Well, actually, this is kind of an interesting point. Um, I tagged along with my aunt on one of her grocery store trips because she was staying there for three months and renting a place. So she was doing just normal life. Yeah. You know, the rest of my family is out touring ancient arts and I'm trolling the aisles of the local market. (laughs) Of course you are. (laughs) Um, The one thing I could not believe was how much Philadelphia cream cheese they had. They had it in small tubs. They had it in small packets. They had it in a huge variety of flavors. And I finally had to speak with someone who lived there. And I said, what is going on here? Why do you have so much of this? And he said, oh, this is, you know, this is in fact all that we use for cream cheese. And it's so prevalent that people just call it Philadelphia. Like he says, people, instead of saying, do you want some cream cheese on that? They'll say, do you want Philadelphia? So I have no idea why Italy, or at least this tiny corner of Italy, has Philly cream cheese, but you can't get it in London. But I just thought that was so funny. That's really fascinating because I, early on in our stay here, I was somewhere and talking to an Australian woman, and I was I was talking about this. I just kind of discovered this cream cheese variation, and she looked at me and she said, "You're right. Like ours is way harder than what they have here. So what is it about the the British Isles and the soft cream cheese?" I mean, I guess for me right now, going to Italy with my suitcase to pick up cream cheese is closer than Australia. So so maybe I'll have to do that next trip. I think that's a strategy. I'm sure you'll just get whipped right through security with a suitcase full of cream cheese. This is one we haven't seen before. The woman's case is full of Philadelphia. Oh, my gosh. Well, finally, though, my absolutely favorite dessert, it was something called a passion fruit bavarese. Have you ever heard of a bavarese before? have not, but you know I am on board with anything passion fruit related. Yes, I thought this was so great since, again, a passion fruit being the thing I can't find in the States. Of course, I just loved being able to have it. It was a new dessert to me. It's essentially a panna cotta, but the mm. texture is a bit lighter, more like a mousse. Okay. And it was made made in a mold and chilled, and then they placed it on the plate, and then they had the passion fruit curd and some white chocolate shavings on top. And oh, it just, it really made me want to revisit our custards and pudding months. Oh. I was like, oh my gosh, we didn't make panna cotta. We didn't make Bavarese. We've got to start doing these things. It's true. I have really fond memories of that month, too, which was um, back in 2017 in March. We did, let's see, rice pudding, banana pudding, creme brulee, but we didn't do a panna cotta. So definitely something to try. Um, And then in episode 88, I made passion fruit curd. So I know. You could look back there, too. And the March episodes were episodes um, 17 through 20, if you want to check out some things. Yes, yes. And you know I'm going to check out that passion fruit passion fruit curd. Well, it's arrivederci for now as we wrap up this segment of the Globetrotting Gourmet. Thanks for listening to me. And thanks for researching all of those desserts and really setting the, the hard goals for yourself while on, <laughs> on vacation. Two gelato a day. Going to have to going to have to try that one next myself. You know, I was happy to stretch myself for you and the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get this episode onto the cooling rack. Next week, we're moving on to full-on fall baking with a month of our favorite autumn flavor, pumpkin. From muffins and cookies to pies and pretzels, October is one of the best months for being busy in the kitchen, and we are so ready. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and consider ranking and reviewing us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. 
And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, performed, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.